Father, we just want to take the time to dedicate this, this study hour to you and, and pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out in the we can understand what you want us to understand. And um, we thank you, Father, for such a wonderful Savior in your Son, Jesus Christ, for all that he has done for us, for his um, saving sacrifice, for the life that he lived, for the fact that he um, has the power to transform our lives and that he sits at your right hand interceding on our behalf. Father, that, that is such a... Salvation alone is an incredibly gracious gift that you've given us that we don't deserve. But to think that we have this high priest who continues his work for us and that he knows what it is to be tempted and to suffer and we can go before this merciful, faithful high priest and receive help in our time of need. We are forever grateful to you for that, Father. Um, and we thank, thank you, Father, that you receive us. And we pray that this morning you will bless us and bless our time. In your son's name, amen. Okay, did you learn a lot about Melchizedek this week? You know, he's an interesting person, not only a difficult name to pronounce and spell, although there's certainly, if you read the Old Testament, there's a lot more that are much harder to pronounce and spell. Um, but he's a, he's a little bit mysterious, isn't he? And he's one of those Old Testament characters that he either fascinates you or you really have no interest in him, or he completely confuses you. But I hope that as a result of this lesson, we have a greater understanding of what the, the point this author is trying to make. And the more I studied it this week, the more I became uh, more aware that I think some of our struggle with him is that we're, we're, not, we're not Jews, and we weren't well-versed. We weren't raised as good Jewish boys and girls well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, and so that makes it a little bit harder for us. But I think you've probably learning, some of you may have learned more than you want to know about him, and some of you would like to delve in to learn more about him. With that, I want to um, tell you a story as far as learning about, <laughs> about people. We had an interesting, uh, about people and about things and about animals, we had an interesting incident in our house the other night. I learned more about possums than I ever knew <laughs> because I go to let the dog out, and we have... The dog goes through the garage to this little side yard, and when I open the door, you see this long tail scurry and the dog go chasing after it, and I'm thinking it's a rat. It was a possum, and that poor thing was so scared and got up on this, this shelf, this empty shelf of this storage shelf we have, and, and then the cat went out too, and so the dog is sniffing around this thing. And the cat is just, you know, sashaying around it like, oh, hi, it's a possum, and we're out here together. And I'm imagining, oh, my goodness, this thing's going to attack the cat and the dog. We're going to end up at OSU vet school at the middle of the night, and getting them apart, we're going to get scratch-up bit and need righty shots. And, I mean, my mind's going everywhere, and I'm yelling at Vance, come, help, help, we've got to get these animals out of here. And we're trying to shoo them far enough away that we can grab them to get them away from this possum because we don't know what it's going to do. We don't know anything about them. And it's just frozen with its mouth open staring at us. And um, we finally get them far enough away we can grab them and get them in the house. And he, would, he or she was out there for quite some time, quite frozen on that shelf. We kept going and looking. And finally, after about an hour, it left. 
So I got online, because I have a smartphone, right? And, and read about these things, and here's what I learned you all. They do not attack dogs. They're really not interested in dogs. Unless the dog attacks them, they will defend themselves. And cats and possums have a general respect and understanding of each other and completely coexist together and really don't care about the other one at all. So that's what I learned about them. So next time I'll just let them tool around out there and <laughs> coexist together till they're all through being interested in each other and come on in. So there's my tidbit for what I learned in addition to Melchizedek this week. <laughs> Possums. You can tell I'm a city girl, can you not? We have all, you know, we live in the city limits and we live in a neighborhood, but we have all kinds of wildlife where we are. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting, the amount of wildlife. Okay, your very first question this week was, as you did your observations, was to look at what keywords popped up for you. And a lot of times, almost every week, I'm going to put that in your lesson. What keywords are there? I think it helps you to go back and look and see them and watch how they lift up off the page and communicate a message to you. And what I did different this week is I just listed them, the ones that I saw up there on, on my observation worksheet. And of course, first, I have, I have the people. I have the who's that are in, that are listed here, because people are also, they are also key. Jesus, the Levitical priest, Melchizedek, and Abraham. And of course, God is mentioned as well. I didn't write that up there, but these, these four are predominate. And the word priest, the word forever, this phrase, phrases are also key. After the order of, because if you remember when I was doing the review last week, the author of Hebrews in chapter 5 brought up that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But then he said, I have much to say about this, but I really can't because you all are immature and you're dull of hearing and you're not, and you're so used to feasting on milk and not meat. I don't know how to explain this to you. So he, he somewhat rebukes them issues a warning, but then encourages them that he has better things. He believes in better things for them. And then he brings it up at the end of chapter 6 again, that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So if you were here last semester, this got brought up a couple of times and then just hung there. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Who is this person and what does that mean? Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's what we're going to learn today, what the, author, the point the author is trying to make. And then, of course, the, the laws brought up or referred to as the former commandment. I don't know if you picked up on the word perfect, and perfection was mentioned several times. We'll talk about that. Change, that's a little more obscure. Oath, the fact that Jesus became a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He became a high priest by an oath by God. And better hope, better covenant. Anytime you see better or more excellent, that's key to the whole book throughout. What, I mean, what has he done, y'all, that were here last semester? Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than, better than, better than. Anything that these persecuted first century believers would be tempted to go back to is in the worship and in the practices of Judaism. Jesus is better than that. Why would you go back to that? There's nothing there because he is the perfect fulfillment of it all. So those are the ones that I saw. My question for you is, did you see something I'm missing? What? 
a guarantor, that Jesus is the guarantor of this better covenant. Good, June. Somebody else? What'd you say? Tithe. We talked about tithes a lot. And we kind of need, in understanding this relationship between Melchizedek and Abraham, we kind of need to understand a little bit about tithes. Yes. Were you going to say something? Oh, king. Ah, yeah. King, definitely. Okay. Ooh, I really missed that one, didn't I? Blessed. Okay. Live and life. Uh, did I put forever? Well, I've got forever. So we'll add that also uh, live and life. Those are kind of all synonyms. Okay? Superior. Superior? It kind of goes with better, doesn't it? We'll put it down here. Superior. Okay? Arise. Did you say arise? Okay. Anything else y'all want to add? I've got the law. Yeah, I've got the law, and where it's referred to synonymically, um, former commandment. I've got that up there. Yeah. Intercession. Intercession. Awesome. Kind of up here with Jesus. Oop, wrong color. Y'all are good. That's a lot. It's a lot of key words, isn't it? So how, how do they relate? It might be hard at this point, but maybe you could do it. If, if I asked you, you know, what is the main, and I think I did in your homework, what is the main idea? What is the main theme? What is the main point that this author is trying to make in this particular text of Scripture in Chapter 7? Could you, could you summarize it in a sentence or two or three? Even It doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't even need to be polished. But if you're just sitting there, if I'm, I'm doing my homework and we're learning new study skills and I look at all this, what would this tell me? Okay, did you all hear Phyllis? There's nothing better than Jesus. There's nothing to compare him to. What was the other thing you said? Uh, Nothing. There's nothing to go back to. There's nothing to add to it. Yeah. Everything about him is better than anything before. That's a good summary. Yeah. What else? He is the perfect priest. Okay. How do I incorporate this whole concept of Melchizedek into a main idea or a main point? Because he keeps talking about him. Also, Melchizedek is a priestly king, not of the, of the Levites, but he is a high regard even to Abraham, and so how much more better is Jesus? Okay, okay, good, good, good thinking. Anybody else? Let's just look at Melchizedek first. Does that sound good? Kind of, if we're kind of going through your questions on question two, who is Melchizedek? Where he shows up in Genesis 14 first. What's the story there? He just kind of appears. What's happening in Genesis 14? Abraham 
What events occur? A lot have been stolen and Abraham like kind of been captured. Captured. <laughs> um, so Abraham is going after him and conquering, I think, two different groups. Oh, it's five and four. I can't remember which is which. I think it was it four kings that go against the five or five go against the four. I don't know. A bunch of these Canaanite kings decide to go make war, and they take Lot and his wife, his wife and his people and his possessions, as they did then. You know, you conquer a particular territory. You take all the spoils, the people and everything they have. Abraham gets wind of this. So what, what does he do? He goes to get him. With how many people? 318. Don't you think those kings had a whole lot more than 318 capable men? Is he successful? Yes. He is able to get Lot and his people and the possessions, and, and he comes back. So that, that is where Melchizedek enters the, the storyline. So he comes in, and, and what happens? Abraham's come back. What do you learn about Melchizedek? Abraham gave him 10% of the spoils. Okay, so Abraham gave him 10%, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Okay. He's called the priest of the Most High God. Okay, so we learn he's priest. Of Most High God. Anybody know what that means? Anybody question why does he say priest of the Most High God? No? Did you, I mean, did you even ask, did anybody ask the question, what does that mean? Yes, yes, as a priest, he would intercede between man and God. So we see that about him. Most high God is actually El Elyon. Um, I don't know if you are aware or not, but in the Old Testament, there's several different names of God that come up, like El Shaddai, um, uh, Jehovah Jireh, different names that come up about him, and they reveal something about who he is. And this makes perfect sense at this particular point. Because what do you have? You have Abraham, who is vastly outnumbered with his 318 men, going against all of these mighty Canaanite kings, and yet he is successful and wins everybody back. Who is Abraham? He is the one that has the blessings of God and the promises of God. God most high, this is the sovereign God. He is over, there is no one above him. Anybody else that would claim to be a god, which we know there are no other gods but him, would be lower in rank than him and less in power. The sovereign most high God is the one who can uh, protect his people, particularly the people that he has given the promises to, and, uh, and help them in, through his power to be victorious over the enemy. Do you see how that brings more of a richness to the story when he says he's priest of God most high? This is God Most High, El Elyon, the sovereign God, Yahweh, who has caused this victory.
for Abraham, and they're going to recognize it by worshiping him and recognizing who he is as God Most High. So he's priest of God Most High. Who else is he? <coughs> king of Righteousness. King. His name, he's King of Salem, which means righteousness. No, that means peace. But he's also king. The Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Okay, what else? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? But we don't, the author in Hebrews doesn't make any comment about that. But I think it's very interesting. But he doesn't, he doesn't mention it. What else do you learn about him? He doesn't, he, he doesn't have any, he has no genealogy. Okay, right here, two things that come up. What's unusual? That he is a priest and a king. What? We don't usually have both because priests are Levites. Yeah. Yeah, what does the law say? The Levites are the priests, right? And the law says a king cannot be a priest and a priest cannot be a king. That would, would never happen. And yet we have here a priest king, don't we? What, what else is, what's unusual about him not having a genealogy? Well, he's not a Levite. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> what's unusual about him not, well, first of all, what is the, um, what is the author, he takes this fact that there's no genealogy mentioned about him, and what conclusion does he draw about him? Okay, one, he resembles, and how does he resemble? Okay, he is a priest forever. Uh -oh. And are you thinking through the fact that there's no genealogy, it's almost as if he doesn't have a beginning, he doesn't have an end. There's no mention of a beginning, no mention of an end. He's really kind of a strange person because he just shows up on the scene, out of the middle of nowhere, and then disappears, and we really have no other mention of him until several, several thousand years, like a thousand years later or however long, and, and David mentions him in Psalm 110, and then the author of um, Hebrews brings him up. And other than Hebrews, that's the only New Testament mention of him. So it's kind of like, where did he come from? Just poof, there he is, bewitched. He showed up. But no genealogy. Anybody else know why it's so odd he has no genealogy? Yeah, Demery. Well, I just have a question. The, the no genealogy thing, is that from Genesis? Or how do we get, like, the, other than the fact that it's genealogy? Do you read a genealogy in Genesis? Yeah, I don't know. I'm just like, okay. Okay. Yeah, let's think about Genesis. Anybody read through Genesis lately? Lots of genealogies. Anybody? Lots, right? That you could get lost in the lots of them. 
Anybody who is anybody in the saving purposes of God has a genealogy. And, and that would have been kind of Jewish thinking. Who are you, Kay? Who's your father? Well, I don't know who you are if I don't know who your father is and who his father is. Do you want to add something to that, Jim? I see well, you popping out. Mm-hmm. There's something that is deeper, that Abraham gets it from where? That what's going on before that? Because the Jews were kind of locating God within their own history only instead of realizing his supremacy to stand outside of them. Mm-hmm. And so what the Hebrew writer appears to be doing is looking at the surprised silence in Genesis, as Nancy was pointing out. Mm-hmm. Man, in a book that loves genealogy, it doesn't seem to care about him. Mm-hmm. And the Hebrew writer underlines says, hey, and by the way, even though, like, honestly, the Bible cares about Jesus' genealogy. It's not like, it's, it's not like it hates his genealogy, but then if you go back and either look at Luke 2 or Matthew 1, what you actually see is that ultimately all of this points back beyond any kind of Adam, and it points back to the supremacy of God. So I think that's the underlying idea that the Hebrew writer is pointing out, is, hey, notice this amazing guy that your forefather doesn't even have a genealogy. Mm-hmm. So what is Abraham recognizing there? That actually, I'm just a servant of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I need to just recognize this Melchizedek mm-hmm. has a whole plan. It's a little bit of like, I think of the John uh, material where Jesus looks at Peter and says, why don't you follow me? And he says, what about him? And Jesus says, what, what is it to you what I wanted? I want him to stay around until he comes back. That's my business. You focus on, and that's what Abraham is doing. Because mm-hmm. Abraham's recognizing Well, well, what's interesting about Melchizedek that I didn't, I wish I could take credit for this, but I didn't even think of it, although we should all think about it. Because if you know Abraham, you know that Abraham's called out of Ur when he's basically a pagan who just by God's grace hears God's voice and God decides to use him and take him out of his, he and his family out of where they are to a land that he's going to show him and make these promises for him and eventually make a covenant and as you know, it's through Abraham that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, which how are they going to be blessed? Through Jesus Christ. And you tend to think, well, there's just really no other believers out there on the planet earth. But somehow, since the days of Noah in the flood, over here in the land of Canaan, there's a remnant. Because here's Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. So, 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 God, so there's still a remnant over there. God just isn't recording them. He's recording what he's doing through Abraham. I think that's amazing.
Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, hang on, Lynn. The other thing interesting that I read was that it, um, and this is where I think it helps if we have grown up in a Jewish culture, we understand these things more, and we're a little bit of a handicap, is that for the, it was not an unusual thing for the rabbinical writers to um, argue from silence. And if their understanding was if it wasn't in the Torah, then it just didn't exist. So we didn't have a genealogy, so we had no beginning and end. It's not saying he didn't have a mother and a father. It's not saying he's some supernatural being. It's just it's not mentioned. Therefore, as far as the scriptural record goes, he lives forever. He is eternal. He had no beginning. He had no end. He had no genealogy. Are you all following me? That kind of Jewish thinking, the genealogy, does that make sense? I, I had read that before, uh -huh. but I really had huge questions about it. Okay. Okay, answer the question. It is a good question. Is he figurative or is he real? And why do you say that? I didn't really understand the question. You didn't understand? How did you understand it, Brenda? I thought he was a real person, but they were speaking of him figuratively in that he didn't have any beginning or end. Okay, okay. But he was an actual real person. Okay, maybe I should have clarified that a little bit more. One thing is you. there are... Nobody I read thought this. They alluded to other people that might think it, is that he's like a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't know. No. A foreshadowing and a prototype is not a prefiguring. Does that He may resemble Christ. He does not have Christ as his identity. Does that make sense? And the scripture says, what does it say? It says in there, in one of those verses, he resembled. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. Okay, here's something I would write down if I were you. Don't get lost in Melchizedek because this is not about him. It is about Jesus Christ. Don't get lost in Melchizedek because this is not about him. It is about Jesus Christ, and that is the key to understanding everything about him and what the point the, point the author is trying to make. Do you all understand that? Does that make sense? Don't get lost in Melchizedek. It is not about him. It is, this is all about Jesus Christ. He is a historical, actual figure that for in the biblical record, in God's wisdom and design, did not have the writer record his genealogy because I think God looking forward said, I know what's going to happen. He knows everything that's going to happen. That I'm going to have these people in the first century that are struggling because of persecution and understanding who Jesus is. And so with their history, I can use this character to help them understand 
why Jesus is a priest after the order of Elchizedek, not after the Levitical order of Aaron. And therefore, he is a legitimate high priest because who is Jesus? What tribe is he from? He is from Judah. He is not a descendant from the Levi's, ultimately, Aaron. So he's using a lot, in speaking, in, in the fact that this is about Jesus, he's using Melchizedek and this order of Melchizedek to legitimize and to prove that Jesus is a legitimate high priest. And not only that, he's your perfect high priest, and he is the priest that you need. Because we're going to talk about what's wrong with these here in just a minute. Is that starting to make more sense? Does that kind of answer the question three a little bit more? Okay. I'm glad you said something because that helps me take notes. on the Questions are extremely difficult to craft, Joel. I'm just going to let you know that. And I'm not above stealing them from other sources. I'll just FYI you. But um, it helps if someone gives feedback to then change it if I use it again. We ever use this again just to make it better. Okay? So the Levites were they had priests and high priests, The Levites had priests and high priests. Yes. The Levitical priesthood started with Aaron. Aaron was the first priest, he was the first high priest. And I think as we go on, we're gonna develop this a little bit more. There's gonna be more to say about this priesthood as we move through Hebrews. And if I can squeeze it in, we'll go back and look at some of the um, Old Testament references about that. But he was consecrated as high priest. The priests served daily. They also served for a specific amount of time. And, and then they were like retired. And then there was a high priest. And the high priest once a year, once a year, went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And we'll unpack that a little bit more as well. So only one of all of them got to do that. But the Levitical priests were priests basically uh, solely on the basis of heredity. Trace back to Aaron. I'm a priest. Well, I'm not. A guy would be. It would be a man. Scott's a priest because his dad was 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 a priest because Aaron was a priest. It's the family business. Or family business commanded by the law. It is the ultimate. Anybody watching that series, The Crown, on Netflix? Isn't that good? Ten episodes in one week. Um, Even my husband did it. So you see, Elizabeth becomes queen because her father was king. He became king because his brother, Edward, abdicated the throne to marry a divorced woman who um, the, um, whatever their court system, their system is there, said, no, you cannot, if you do that, if you marry her, you will have to abdicate. But, but you see these, these, these dynasties. We also watch this thing on the Russian czars with a British woman. They don't say dynasty. They say dynasty, the dynasty of the Romanos. And um, it's all based on who your father was and the lineage and the birth order who became king or who became queen. It's kind of this, the same thing, but this was how the law set it up. Make sense? Okay, let's go back to the fact that Abraham gave Melchizedek 10% of the spoils that he had. What's significant about that? 
Jim kind of alluded to it. One, why did he give him 10% of the spoils of what he brought back from the capture of Lot and the victory over the kings? What's symbolic in him doing that? I have all of this, and I'm going to take 10% of what I got. I'm the one that had the courage and went out there and fought these guys, and I'm going to bring it back, and I'm going to hand it to to Glenda here because I love her. I'm going to give it to Glenda. You're not getting very much from me. (laughs) I'm just going to let you know that. What is symbolic in that? What's Abraham doing when he does that? He what? He's giving the first offerings. So he's somewhat recognizing this really isn't mine and I need to give 10% to the Lord. And the priest is the best representative of that. But, but in his doing this to Melchizedek, what is he recognizing about Melchizedek? That he's the priest of God Most High? What else? He's superior to, isn't he? Look in verse, is it seven? It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's a little bit of a confusing verse. That's why I said if you go read it in the New Living, it's a little easier to understand. The New Living says the person who has the power to give the blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because he blesses Abraham And Abraham, who holds all the covenantal promises, is the one who recognizes this priest-king as superior to him and gives him the tithes. Do you all see that? They would have seen that clearly. They wouldn't have had to sit here and reason this through or think about it because they knew who Abraham was In their Jewish history, Father Abraham, the great patriarch, one of their greatest patriarchs, the holder of the covenant promises, what do they pride themselves in? In being a child of Abraham. And yet here is is Abraham, Father Abraham, my great patriarch, giving this man that just shows up out of nowhere, this priest king who is not of the lineage of Levi, a tenth of all the spoils. And in fact, the author goes further. Did you notice that? What does he say? He says, in a sense, Levi's doing what and how. Did you, did you read that on in the next verse? What does he say? He's giving the tithes because he's part of Abraham's seed. Yeah, because Levi is part of Abraham's seed. He's still in his loins way, 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 way down. It's almost as if Levi himself, Levi... And they had high esteem for the Levitical priesthoods. What they've grown up with is what they've known for centuries. Gave this Melchizedek tithes. Because it was the Levites. The Levites, what did they do? They, they, they took the tithes, didn't they? Didn't it tell us that? If you write down what you learned about them, they took the tithes from their brothers, from everybody else. It's basically how they got their support. Because they didn't have land. The Levites were not allotted land. How did they get their support to live was through the tithes. And by being able to eat some of the offerings that were sacrificed. Yes, Tony.
I don't know if it's chronological. What I think the point of that verse is, Tony, that it is somewhat like when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Look, you can have all of this. And Jesus says, no. Uh, the Father hadn't really given that to me. This, this king is saying, hey, I'll, I'll let you have all of it. And Abraham saying, no, none of it's really mine. I only had this victory because God Most High was with me to have this victory. Does that make sense? No, no, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't? Because I don't know when he names it. He named the tenth of his kingdom to Melchizedek. Okay. And then he wasn't supposed to take anything. Go ahead, Kate. Right. And Abraham did not want to receive anything from Sodom and Gomorrah because he was protecting his reputation and his testimony as I am who God has made me to be. Uh-huh. I am not wealthy and I am not famous because of the king of Sodom. And I don't want to be beholden right. to you either. Right. Were you going to say something, Lisa? Same, Same thing. thing. Does that make more sense? No, it still doesn't. <laughs> They're two different these kings. Are, are and I think you, but you recognize that they're two different kings. You're wondering, did Abraham keep the other 90%? Is that what you're wondering? Okay. Okay, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later. Because I'm not, I'm, I'm a little, I'm not sure. I think what you're wondering is why he gave 10% to Melchizedek, but it's like he kept the other 90%. He didn't keep it for himself, personally. He, he was able to take and keep everything that was, what is it called when they take the, the spoils? The spoils of war. And God was 100% for that. But that Sodom would give him wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what he wasn't to take was something from Sodom, mm-hmm. which, of course, we understand where Sodom and Gomorrah was and came from mm-hmm. and ended up being. Mm-hmm. Let me look at it some more, Tony, and I'll help you answer that. Does that sound good? Okay. Yeah, Norma. That, no, I think that's a whole nother step, Norma, that's kind of beyond the scope of, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but I think it's a beyond the scope of just chapter 7. I think in chapter 7, considering the context of who he's talking to, what they're going through, and that he's trying to emphasize the legitimacy of Jesus as, as priest, because let's, let's just go on there. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, right? Wrong tribe. Yeah. And, but he's a priest. What else is he? He's a priest, he's a high priest, and he's a king. 
Yeah, he's also a prophet, but that's not being emphasized right here. But, but a priest was not a king, and a king was not a priest. And they were always in the tribe of Levi. But here's Jesus who's all of those things. So how can that be legitimate? Well, it can be legitimate because you know what? What superseded the law, what came long before the law? Because Abraham, let's put it in a timeline. Abraham was 400, he was several hundred years before the law was given. And yet here's Abraham giving his tithe to a priest king of the God Most High. So I think what, what he's saying is, you know, you're so stuck in this system that where I put you, some that's my fault, I put you there and I told you to follow this, that you forget, go back here to your, your very first roots, that I had a priest king at one time. I was in my prerogative able to establish that as a, as a way for you to be brought near to God and to worship me, and I'm, I'm doing it again through Jesus. And the resemblance is, is that Melchizedek is like Jesus because what do we learn about Jesus? He lives forever, doesn't he? He lives forever. Why does he live forever? What's his genealogy? If we, he, has a, he has a physical genealogy in the Gospels. But apart from that, what do we know? That's his physical genealogy as the incarnate Christ. But as God who sits on the throne, what's his genealogy? He's the son of God that has what? No beginning of days, no genealogy, no beginning, and no end because he is eternal. The genealogy is for his incarnation in, when he came to earth and took on flesh and blood. But as he truly is, there's no beginning, there's no end. He is eternal God. Is this starting to make a little more sense? Okay. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure. It seems to me that he had this point that he's acting like a Melchizedek. What kind of redeemer is that? Oh, you mean like with the limited knowledge he had of the promises? Uh huh. Okay. I think I'm following you, but I'm not sure. Well, let me, let me, in comment to that, and I'm having a little trouble hearing you too, Lochiva, let, go to the quote on the first page, and I think this might kind of sum up what you're saying. That quote, the Son of God dominates the Word of God both, in both Testaments. The marks of Christ are clearly impressed on all its pages for those who have an eye to see. Throughout the Old Testament, everything's pointing to Christ. 
I mean, think about the story of when Abraham is told to take his son Isaac, your one and only son, the one whom you love, up on the mount to sacrifice him. And he does that, and at the very last minute, God provides the lamb for him. I mean, isn't that somewhat of a, him showing Abraham an object lesson? You know what, Abraham, I spared your son, but someday I'm going to put my son up there, and he will not be spared. And that's some of what I mean by in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know, do you see what I'm saying? It, and, and the more you understand the priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and we'll see more and more of this as we go through um, Hebrews, what are they all doing? They're a shadow. He'll say that next week. They are a copy and they are a shadow of the true thing. They're, for lack of better words, they're like a visual aid of what I'm really going to do. Yeah, Lynn. Yes, he is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why I said, don't get lost in Melchizedek. It's not about him. It's about Jesus. Yes. Yes. Right. Did y'all hear Abraham was obedient? He was obedient to God in doing this. And we do see his obedience. We're doing the story. You all heard the story, the Bible. Uh huh. It's a book, right? It's all one story. It's all one story, beginning to end, and that's why I say I love to study the Old Testament. That's probably one of the reasons I love Hebrews is it makes us go back to everything in the Old Testament and connect it. And I think when you understand that, I've always said when you really understand, it, as I hope you will, how, what a fulfillment he is of all of this that was shadowed and copied in the Old, you have a better depth of understanding and grasp of what it means, what his sacrifice meant. It just becomes deeper and more layered and more rich, and you appreciate it more because you have an understand. I think you have understanding what the real gospel message is. It didn't start when Jesus came, but it started clear back here when Adam and Eve fell. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, always another thing to always remember, and I'll keep drawing in it, always remember my little upside-down you, that this is, you know, first century, we're now 2017, yikes, and we have this whole span of time. This author wrote to those people in their situation to communicate a message to them, so we have to understand what he was saying to them and what they were understanding first 
before I can take it across the cultural divide down here to know, okay, now what is he saying to me through that? Does that make sense? We want to just read it and go, what does this mean to me? And that's where you get messed up. And I'll keep repeating that over and over and over again because I'm as guilty as anybody of reading something because I'm hurting or I'm struggling and I'm trying to find an answer. And so what does this mean to me? Does that make sense? I'll, I'll want to skip that as well. Give me an answer for me right now because the world is revolving around me and I need an answer right now. And we all do it, right? Yeah. But we've got to do the work. And that's what we're doing. We're doing the work. I don't think they would have struggled with this like we are. And they wouldn't be as confused as we are. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Because one, we're just not familiar with Melchizedek. And they would have been. Okay, in our remaining time, Levitical priesthood. What was wrong with it? What do we know about it? It was, it was hereditary. They took tithes. It was all, you could only be a priest if you were a tribe, if you were from the tribe of Levi, descended from Aaron. What happened to these men? They died. They were mortal. It says they were mortal men. And they died. And how many of them were there? Many oodles. Many, many, many. Many generations of them. Many living at one time, generation after generation. Yes, June? Mm -hmm. They had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin. For their own sin. Yes, they did. They were, they were mediators between God and man. That's who the people went through, was through them. They were the system and the tabernacle and the sacrifices were all the system that God set up, which was good, it was not bad, and it was um, graciously given. It was given by grace by God to his people at a particular point in redemptive history so that they could draw near to him. And have intimate fellowship with him. Because even under the law, it says, I will be their, I will be their God and they will be my people. Implying there will, be fellow, there will be intimacy between us. Okay? But what was wrong? The Levitical priesthood and the law, what was wrong with it? It tells us here. I may be getting way off the questions. But it tells us here. What was wrong with it? What could it not do? Yes, Kim? Uh-huh. Covered it, it didn't, it didn't forgive it. Yeah, it covered, but there was no power to save. Atone means to cover. So their sins were covered so they could have relationship with God, but there was really no forgiveness of sin. So they had to keep offering them every day, day after day, day after day, month after month, year after year. Good point, yeah. So if that's true, using one of these key words over here, what was it not able to do? Couldn't make you perfect. And what do we mean? Does anybody know what that means? Could not make perfect. What'd you say? It's not a part. It could not make you complete. It could not make you whole. 
It could not save you to the uttermost. It lacked perfect perfection. So it had a, it, in some ways, it was useless. Now, what we'll get into next week is that there's nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong is with us, not the law. But that's, that's what was wrong here. Whereas Jesus, as a king priest, which going back to Melchizedek, how does Melchizedek resemble Jesus, not the other way around? He's a king priest. Isn't he king of righteousness? Prince of Peace as well. We see him described that way as righteousness, the Prince of Peace. Wonderful counselor. He lives forever, ever, no beginning, no end. What else? What else did you learn about him? He is, yeah, why, why is he qualified? Yeah, what did it say? He was holy. What else? Innocent. Yeah. I'm not going to write all those on there, but let's just read them all. Unstained, separate from sinners, hmm? exalted above the heavens. And how did he become a high priest? By what? By an oath. By an oath. And if you remember when we were back in chapter 6, by an oath. Does God need to give an oath to his word? What is he, when, he's, when he speaks his word, his word is enough. What did he do with his word? He spoke his word and the worlds and the heavens came into existence and man came into existence. His word by itself is enough. He gives an oath for us. It's, that's for us. That is his kindness. Somebody said he kind of gets down on the level of like, you know, like we're two. He wants to get down on our level and say, here's what I want you to understand. I could just speak it, and it's true, and you should be able to accept that. But for your sense of security, and especially because of what you're going through, I will give an oath. I will add something man-made that you do to, to it and say, not only an oath, but I won't ever go back on my word about this. He is a high priest forever, righteousness and peace. Once for all, we didn't put it up there, once for all sacrifice. And where is he? Why is he the priest that we need? Where is he? What does the scripture tell us? And what's he doing there? Interceding for us. Because, as chapter 4 said, he is a merciful and faithful high priest. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to, be suff- to suffer. He knows what it is to be rejected, to, to go through all the temptations and the struggles that we have in our flesh, and he has offered that once-for-all sacrifice, and he has sat down, and we'll learn more in, next week in the weeks that follow what's significant about the fact that he sat down. That doesn't mean he quit working. It's just the sacrificing is finished, but he's still working because he's interceding on our behalf, and he has opened the way that we don't have to go through imperfect priests that have to make a sacrifice. They're, they're weak. They're chosen, they're chosen among men who are weak themselves and full of sin. We don't go through that now. We go through him, a high priest that lives forever, a priest king who sits on the throne at the right hand of God. That is the priest we need. Yes, Kim? Yes. Himself. The perfect sacrifice. 
Those animals had to be spotless, without blemish, but they were still imperfect. And all they did was cover the sin. His provides forgiveness of sin. And therefore, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. He is a superior and a better hope. So back to the context, back here in the first century, these people. I I hear your struggle. I understand what you're struggling with. But this thing you're looking back to, it, it was only the form and the shadow of the substance that you now have in Jesus Christ. So look to him. Consider him. Consider him. And fix your eyes on him because he is the priest that you need. Make sense? Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Um, By the way, are you ready for this? This is kind of an interesting thing. I shared this with my, I do a Bible study, which we're in Hebrews right now with some guys uh, early on Tuesday morning. And uh, I sat down with them and I asked them a question and everybody got it wrong. But I guarantee you, you guys are way smarter than them. So uh, this is going to be an easy question. How do you spell Columbia? What? Uh huh. That is right. It is not a U. Never put a U. If you're talking Colombia, that's in America, right? Colombia is the country. C O L O. And they, that's a big deal, <laughs> right? That's a really big deal. I saw a bunch of people t shirts. It's Colombia, not Colombia, idiot, you know? So that's kind of the way it worked. I thought that was absolutely fascinating and interesting. So um, I'm not trying to pick a fight with this statement, but I have to begin with it. Sometimes we get the wrong answer because we've asked a stupid question. Sometimes we get the wrong answer because we've asked a stupid question. And when I say stupid, I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm just saying that when you ask a question... Okay, this is kind of what Tony and I were just describing. Tony's asking a question about, like, where does the Abraham's tithe come from? Where does Abraham's tithe come from? And we only are looking at this text in Genesis 14, and so we're trying to figure that out. Um, and I, I, I told her it's a little bit like asking, what is Abraham's favorite kind of cake? I don't know. The text doesn't say. So where did the tithe come from? The answer is What? I don't know. And sometimes this happens to all of us, to all of us, is that we begin to pursue a question, and I think it's good to ask, the text may not be interested in this question. Because when you pursue and pursue and pursue something, and you are hell-bent to get there, the only way that you will be able to get there is by twisting the text to make it give you the answer that you want. My good friend Doug Aldridge, okay, says to me, uh, says to me there was a time um, at Ozark Christian College, I was already gone because I, I would not have done well during this time of the, of the school's history, but there were a bunch of students that absolutely were uh, just bent on being pacifists no matter what the Bible says. And so one of them said to Doug Aldridge, he said, hey, Doug, I'm, I'm doing a paper on pacifism primarily from the Old Testament. And I'm out to prove this. And Doug said, oh, don't worry, you will. And Doug, and the guy was a little bit surprised because Doug's not a pacifist by nature. He's more of a biblicist. Um, and Doug says, don't worry, you will. And he said, really? You think I will? He said, oh, yeah. Like, if you're set to prove it, you'll do it if it's there or not. 
And that's, that's true for all of us. All of us need to hear that. If you are going to prove something in the Bible, whether it's there or not, the good and the bad news is you will. And that's a little bit of the book of Hebrews. It's a little bit of what we're studying on Sunday morning in, um, in, in Matthew's gospel, isn't it? What does Jesus say to them? And this Sunday's text is, uh, we're going to be looking at the kind of the whole end. I was supposed to, it was supposed to be three sermons, but while I was in Colombia, um, I said, no, I'm just going to do this in one. But there's a bunch of different questions, and if you read the ending of Matthew 23, that's what made me say, wow, this is very similar to a lot of the questions that I have, a lot of the questions that you were asking about Melchizedek and genealogy and where is this and where does that come from, I just had to stop and go, the Hebrew writer isn't answering that question. And I can keep pursuing it and pursuing it. And by the way, I'm not even saying it's like bad or it's wrong. But if you don't recognize the limitations, okay, and I would argue there's a limitation in the text. I'm not saying in God, but there's a limitation in the text, right? The text has limits. The text isn't trying to say everything about everything. It's trying to say something about something. And when we go to the Bible to go, I want it to... I need it to, then we're more prone to twist and to shape the scriptures out of our desperation than anything else. Um, the older I get, the more I see foolishness in others that is in me. You know what I'm talking about? I'll hear somebody say something, and I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then I swallow really, really hard, and I go, and I think I say that all the time. And it's humbling, isn't it? So when I'm describing this, it's like, I know exactly, I know where you're going. I know why you're going there. I've done that a million times. I see the foolishness when you do it, right? It's so clear to me. I, I, why are you doing it? Why are you chasing that? Why won't you let it go? And God's like tapping me on the shoulder going, seriously, you might want to look around, right? Hypocrite, thy name is Jim. Like, why, why don't you dial it back as well? So here's what I here's what I here's what I want to do is I want to and by the way if you want to look at some fascinating inappropriate ways to look at questions read the ending of Matthew 22 sometime before between now and Sunday uh, the Pharisees and then the Sadducees are coming at Jesus and they're asking questions laughing at him hey Jesus because <laughs> you are so dumb that you actually believe in a resurrection let me ask you this question so there's this guy and he's married to this girl. And he dies. And, you know, the Bible actually says that his brother's supposed to marry her, and so he does, and then he dies. And then to show you how dumb your thinking is, Jesus, that's the implied here. He dies, and then the next brother dies, and then the next, and he's, they're showing it, and this was a Jewish way of arguing, okay, of showing the extreme to show the foolishness or where the argument begins to break down. That's kind of their, what would be, we would call their hermeneutic. And all the way down to the seventh, which is a very strong Jewish number, right? All the way down to the seventh, chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. So Jesus, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And they're asking a question, but they're really not asking a question. And what does Jesus say? Like, you're ignorant. You know what the problem is? You're ignorant. Your question's wrong. And you know what he says to them? You're ignorant of two things. You're ignorant of the power of God. And this one, this one hit me when I was in Colombia studying this, okay? I, that first statement blew me away. I hate to really, but the good news is you don't need to come Sunday, okay? 
But, but, but listen to this statement. Your problem is you do not know the power of God. That's your problem. You don't get the power of God, which isn't a generic statement. They're looking at the scriptures, and they're trying to connect the dots. Have you ever done this? Have you ever looked at the scriptures and tried to connect the dots? And there's no numbers, so I have no idea what that is. <laughs> like, I have no idea how those dots connect. I don't think they do. That's just dumb. I don't think they do. You know, Christian, Christian or non-Christian people who look at the dots of Scripture and go, you can't connect those. A loving God sending people to hell. You can't connect those. Had that one? Constantly. Seven, resurrection after the dead. Yeah, well, then explain to me this text in Leviticus, which the Sadducees believed in. Right, And there really isn't a lot of an afterlife. You try to find afterlife stuff in the first five books of the Bible, it's not there. Okay, And they looked at the scriptures in their thinking, and they couldn't connect the dots, and then they decided they can't be connected. And we do that all the time. We do that all the time. The dots can't be connected. Why? Because I couldn't connect them. Okay? So you're telling me, they can't be connected because you can't connect them. Now, now, can I just share with you, one of the reasons why you don't need to come Sunday, can I share with you, like, things that I've heard and even things that I've thought and then things that I'm grateful that I no longer think. Things that I've heard and things that I've thought and things that I'm grateful that I no longer think. I've heard people say this, man, I'll tell you one thing, man, I love my wife, I love my wife a lot, and if she's not in heaven, there's no way I could appreciate it. There's no way I could value it or understand it or, or have any. I'd have no joy in heaven if Andrea's not there. I, I get what you're saying. You're saying you love your wife? Cool. I do too. But do you know people, or are you a people, that can't connect the dots of a heaven without those that you love the most? Right? Yes? You understand where I'm coming from with this? You know people who say that? Those dots don't connect. Those dots do not connect. And by the way, I know people who refuse to accept Christ because they have reasoned, and probably accurately, that those that they love the most who are already gone won't be there, so I'm not going either. Right? They cannot, and I would tell you, if Jesus were to say something to them, he would say to them, you do not understand the power of God Right? That's why I love my wife so much, who will look at me and say, actually, I'm kind of looking forward to the day when I'm not married to you. <laughs> By the way, it's not that she doesn't love me. She, she is incredibly gracious, Patty, is she not? Gracious and kind and sweet. She just really does more than almost anybody I know. She just, when she compares me to Christ, I am but a shadow to him. And she loves her kids a ton. But her kids are but a shadow compared. So before we go, oh yeah, those dumb Sadducees who can't connect the dots of seven and the resurrection. I don't know. What, what's yours? What are, the, what are the dots that you can't connect? What are the incongruities in God's plan in terms of how God works that you don't like or want or kind of just kind of hold at bay, right? And this is a big deal in our culture. 
I won't be a Christian because I think God is unfair or unkind or powerless. Are you not knowing? This is the number one argument against following Jesus today. The dots don't line up. And they cannot conceive how a loving God would allow, how a gracious God would allow. And because they can't connect the dots, they refuse to play or look at the picture. Okay? That's kind of how we can look at um, that's kind of how we can look at Hebrews 7, actually. Okay? But before we get to Hebrews 7, which I want to kind of actually end with very quickly, because my joy that I get, Nancy breaks it down and kind of looks at all these avenues, and I get to go, no, I get, I get the big picture. I kind of like the big picture. Here's the big picture, and I'm gonna, uh, I won't throw her under the bus because I love her so much. She reminds me of me a lot, actually. It's Morgan. I love her. I love her, and I love her zeal and her passion. And when she's very, she's very honest and vulnerable, and I, I think it's kind of fun because um, she was just describing. She'll look at me, and when she gets frustrated with a, a Bible passage, it just comes out of her. She's just like, ah, I hate this. This is driving me crazy. Why can't I connect the dots? She just gets, like, in her office, vocal about it, right? Because this is how God works in her mind, right? Because how many of you look at God and go, he's logical, he's consistent? Do we not? Like, genealogies always matter, right, Nancy? Unless he doesn't want them to matter. Like, and so in terms of, like, how things work, right? We all know that in terms of the order of children, the ones that God blesses and the one that God kind of keeps as the primary is which one in the birth order? The oldest. You know, kind of like Ishmael and Isaac. No. Kind of like Abraham and his... No. Okay. But you, but you know what I mean. No, I don't know what you mean. Tell me, what, tell me how that works, actually. Like Judah the fourth? Like Joseph, in terms of how God blessed them? Joseph the eleventh? Like, tell me how God works. And this is where we get frustrated. We want God, and hear me, he is, lo- here is this. God is not logical, he is logic. Do you see the difference? God is not logical. He is logic. God is not loving. He is love. And that is a, that is a fundamental paradigm that if you don't have, like this is whatever, this is a picture that whether you can see it or not, this is God's plan, whether you can get it or not. And what we want, kind of our scientific method, is we want to be able to come up with a system so that we can then take that system and superimpose it upon any other kind of a situation, and we'll know exactly what to do. Is that not kind of the scientific method, right? We study it, we study it, and so that we can reproduce it in all situations. Yeah, you'll hate the Bible. Because the Bible doesn't operate like that. Is it because God's not logical or orderly? No, he totally is. But there may be an order, there may be a way of knowing, which, by the way, does the Bible say things like, 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 try to think my thoughts after me if you can. Does he not say this? Come along and reason with me. Though your sins are red as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. How do we get there? Like, what kind of logic do we use? How about the logic that goes like this? God is God. You are not. Therefore, let your words be few. God is God. You are not. He gets to do whatever he wants. And again, how many times have we talked about this, right? 
the beautiful, I just, I talk about it all the time now, and probably because I'm in Hebrews and Matthew, the prerogative of God. And if you don't like it, and if you don't get it, it'll rub you raw. And sometimes it breaks down into its smallest components, like I was watching you guys chase right here. Well, wait a second, how does that work? And how does that, why does he have the tenth? And where did he get the tenth from? And what's going on with that? And what about the genealogy? And is Melchizedek real or not real? And how does that work? And again, those are all questions that in the observation aspects we should pursue. But then we need to realize, okay, we've run out of evidence. We need to just stop chasing this until we get more evidence. But right now, I can't, I can't determine some of these things, okay? So I want to show you two very interesting texts, and then we'll end with Hebrews 7. So the first one I want you to turn to is I want you to turn to Luke chapter 24. This might be kind of strange. Luke chapter 24. And I want to begin, actually, in verse 13. First of all, one of the things that was most complicating for me is when I look at how Jesus operates, everything, like this is, this is what I do. So I'm walking with Jesus. I, this happens to me all the time. So I'm walking with Jesus. And when you're walking with someone, you begin to kind of get like in, in tune with their steps, right? So we're walking. And this is our pace that Jesus and I are walking. And so I'm used to walking like this. And so I kind of get into this rhythm and I get into this pace. And then I get just so excited in terms of what's going on, and I'm walking, and I'm walking, and I'm walking. And then I finally stop, and I go, where's Jesus? Where'd he go? And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, you, you thought that that was the only way I knew how to walk, right? You thought that one pace was the only pace. No, 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 no. I'm Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to walk where I want, when I want, how fast I want, how slow I want, in any direction that I want. Isn't that the constant issue of Jesus in the Bible? So in John's gospel, the disciples think they're going to walk this way, um, and all of a sudden Jesus is at this woman and this well, and they're going, what is going on? And Jesus is going, hey, like this is what I'm doing. Okay, um, I don't get it. I mean, they, they should, his, his parents should have told the disciples, listen, when he was 12, we couldn't control this kid. The kid's going to do what the kid's going to do. Truly, he's going to do, actually, he's going to do what his father tells him to do, right? And that's the beauty of it, is every time they think, they literally, is this not true for you? Have you not been walking with Jesus, and you think you get his pace, and you think you get his rhythm, and so you just keep going, and then life gets busy, and you're just walking, and if you'll stop long enough, you'll look around, and you'll go, it's not like he abandoned you. You just kind of ran up ahead or ran. And by the way, he, you just call him. He'll find you again. But by the way, you'll go to him. Okay? And by the way, I'm not saying he won't come to you. You know, work with the analogy, okay? Like truly, it's not like he adapts to you. We should adapt to him, right? And by the way, for those people that are going, hey, I'm not going anywhere. This is where I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand right here. And if Jesus isn't going to come to me, then I don't want any part of him. Well, you won't have any part of him. So if you were to ask me, like, what Jesus should do is, man, he should rise from the dead, come back, walk into the temple, boom, look who's back, boom, would, is that not what you would do? Don't you want him to rub it in their face? Don't you want him to prove that who he is? Do you not want that? I sure do. What does he do? Find some women who've been faithful to him, pulls them aside, come back. Yeah, but Jesus, what, what are these women going to do? Oh, they're going to tell. They're going to they're accomplish, by the way, everything I need to be accomplished. 
yeah, you need to go to the temple. And you need to demonstrate your power there, right? By the way, when I start talking like that, who do I sound like? You need to go to the temple and to the high places and to demonstrate your great power. Who do I sound like? Yeah, who else? Satan. They sound like his unbelieving brothers. You need to go. They're mocking him in John 7, by the way. You need to go up to the temple and prove yourself. And they're laughing at him. Jesus says, I'm not going up. Then later on, he goes up. <laughs> is that not fascinating? So if this is what Jesus does all the time, you think it's different with you? And I never would have done what Jesus does with the road to Emmaus. The only account of this, by the way, is in Luke's, in Luke's gospel. Look at this. That very day, so the resurrection is taking place, the women are amazed, the disciples are freaking out, okay? And now they all know. So they essentially know what's going on. The resurrection has been made known to those who are closest to him. And again, instead of Jesus running around and proving, and, and by the way, the prerogative of God is we would do that to vindicate ourselves. And you know why I want to be vindicated? Because I am, uh, um, I'm, I have an overflated in view of self. That's why I want to be vindicated. I want you to know that I know that you know that I was right and you were wrong. And I want everybody to know that I was right and you were wrong. But God doesn't have that. God doesn't have an insecurity. You know that, right? No insecurity in him. So he gets to do what he wants to do. And if, by the way, if only two women in a garden were the only ones that ever knew, God is completely fine in that. Now, he has chosen by his grace to have a huge banquet. Isn't that crazy? But you know God would be fine with just him and Mary and Martha and go, yeah, this is all I wanted for eternity. <laughs> Again, the invitation you and I received is by his grace. And if that doesn't make you weep, look at verse 13. So that very day, two of them are going out to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they're talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is a very interesting motif. Like even as we are looking at the, one of the reasons why I went here was because of the idea of walking amongst people um, and the kind of their, their identity being kept from them. And that there's a number of those in the Bible where this happens. And interestingly enough, the Hebrew writer seems to draw a little bit on the Melchizedek character from Genesis 14. I won't say in the exact same way, but there is some interesting comparisons. So, um, so they're, they're, it's, it's being held from him. They were, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them said, one of them named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know? I mean, this is, he's talking to Jesus. <laughs> he's saying to Jesus, do you not know what happened to Jesus, Jesus? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these, in these last days? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? God goes along with us. No, tell me. Tell me about it. I have no idea what you're going through. Why don't you tell me? But what things, he said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how about how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, now some women, and you have to hear that. It's, it's not that they didn't like women. 
But culturally speaking, their testimony is not valid in court. So there is a distrust that just exists. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. By the way, these guys don't even have the full evidence, which is interesting because I always think that everybody has every piece of all of the information all the time. But the truth is, even as you look at the resurrection accounts, Women are scattering. Some are going on. Mary kind of lingers back. Look at John's gospel. It looks like what happens is, is, oh, the tomb is empty. They freak out. Go and tell. The women go and tell, but they're scared. They don't know what to do. The women keep going. Mary, apparently, according to John, as she's walking, and that's why it's good to go to Jerusalem because you can see the distance. Have you ever started a journey, and by the half time you get there, you're like, I don't know if I want to go anymore? You ever done that? So this is Mary. Go back and tell everybody. Okay, um, am I the only one here, or is it kind of crazy that we're going back and telling them? Did we really see what we saw? Why don't you guys go, and I'm going to go back. i gotta, I got to look in the tomb one more time. There he goes back. So the resurrection accounts, um, not everybody has all of the information. If you look at it, Peter runs, and then John beats him there, and then he looks in, and he's already gone, and where's Jesus, and... And collectively, we look at this like somehow everybody has all the information, but these guys to Emmaus don't have all the information, right? It's going to take a while to kind of compile what happened, right? What would you say to a policeman who kind of showed up on the scene of of an emergency, took five minutes and go, yeah, I have all I need to know. Wouldn't you go, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't figure everything out in five minutes. You need to do a careful, don't you? So this is what's kind of unfolding. So, verse 25. Here's what I would have done. And then he just, ta-da! Right? He doesn't. He doesn't do exactly what I thought he would do, which is ta-da them to death. But he doesn't. And one of the reasons why I believe he doesn't ta-da them to death is because then you get into the trap of always needing a ta-da. Right? And that, by the way, is a human thing. You don't need to feel bad or stupid for needing a tada, or wanting, I should say wanting. For wanting and thinking as though you need a tada. Right? That proof. How many of us have we just wanted the proof? Do we not? But then what happens? Well, then I need the proof again. And then what happens? Well, I need the proof again. And then what happens? Well, I need the proof one more time. So what do you really have faith in? I have the faith in me being proven consecutively over and over and over again. That's what I have. Have we not created an addiction that cannot be satisfied on this side of eternity? And I really believe that's why Jesus does this. By the way, is Jesus staying around with them forever? No. What's happening? He's going to be around for a while. He's leaving. Why? Because God's plan and God's prerogative is not, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take care of this now. The disciples have no idea where this is going, right? They don't know about the Holy Spirit. They don't know about the evangelization of the Gentile world. They know none of that. So look what happens. And he said to them, and you gotta, it's okay. Whatever Jesus calls you is okay. He says to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that I have said. What does it say? 
all that the prophets have spoken. See, isn't this what the Hebrew writer is saying? The Hebrew writer is saying repeatedly, here's your issue. You guys aren't paying attention to your, uh, to your children's stories when you were kids, right? Like you're forgetting about what God did with David, and you're forgetting what God did with, you're forgetting how God worked with Abraham. You're forgetting what, I mean, he's drawing them back, not just to Christ. Now, he is the full reality, but there is a continuity the Hebrew writer is actually showing here. And sometimes we just like the discount. God used to, but now he. I hear that all the time. And, um, and if what you mean is God used to, and now he has fulfilled, and now he has brought it to its fullness or its completion, now that is good. But if what you're trying to do is create a contrast where God used to, but now that's all thrown away because it's dumb and stupid and bad, and now God has this, that's not good theology. The Bible doesn't give you a God did it A and now all of a sudden he's doing it blue. No, it's God did it and there was there was order to it that he directed and that he purposed. And the Bible writers say, follow my finger, follow my finger, follow where I'm going, right? Follow the bouncing ball, follow the dots. And I need, I need by the way, I need like Paul's help to follow the dots. I need the Holy Spirit's help, don't you? to follow the dots. And that's what the Hebrew writer is doing. The Hebrew writer is saying, let me, let, me, let me go back to Genesis 14 and let's follow the dots. And what do you say? Okay, I wouldn't have got that from Genesis 14. All right? So when Tony and I are reading Genesis 14 about this thing and then he stumbles across Melchizedek, how many of you read that when you were a kid and went, that's Jesus? No, it's just some dude named Melchizedek. Isn't it kind of funny that he's from Jerusalem? Jerusalem, Salam, peace, like Shalom. Right? That's a, that's a very interesting dynamic. And so look at it. You are, you are slow to heart and to believe what the prophet spoke of. So Jesus is a continuous action in God's plan. He is actually the fulfillment of God's plan. He's not a, he's not a plan B. He was always plan A. Everything leads to him. Everything is for him and by him and through him. This is how the Bible talks. You don't like that if you don't get it. Like, I'm sorry, that's really all I got for you. I don't have, I don't have another option. Like, really, that, that picture, that's Jesus. Do you see it? And those of us look at that and go, oh, I see it. And others are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. Magic eye, magic eye, right? I don't, I don't see Jesus. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea how to show you. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. I want you to look in Genesis 14. You see Jesus? Magic eye, magic eye. You see it? Some of us are going, no, where's the genealogy? I don't get it. Because what it should be is if I were writing Genesis, if I were, write, if I were working it, then it would be this and then this and then this and then this and then this, and that's the way it has to be. And if it's not going to be that way, then I don't want anything to do with it. And by the way, that is my personality. I used to believe that God is logical. And where he outstepped me, <laughs> he has to get back in line. Instead of going, no, 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 I need to rethink. And by the way, God has forced me to rethink love, to rethink forgiveness, to rethink order, to rethink plan, to rethink purpose. Does he not? 
Uh, by the way, because if not, then by the, you're God, <laughs> by definition. If he has to capitulate to you, then I just I see how this works. You're the one that has put yourself on the, on the throne. And then notice what he says here in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It literally went through time after time after time after time after time after time. See, do you see him? At that time he was saying him, not me. Do you see him? Do you see him? Do you see, like the Hebrew writer, do you see him? Do you see him? Do you see him? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised actually if Genesis 14 and Melchizedek was one of those. Because the text around it actually is very similar to some of the stuff we're seeing in Matthew's gospel. So it's Psalm 110, verse 4. Like, they're drawing these things, and Jesus is showing them this connection, right? He's helping them connect the dots. And I think one of the reasons why is because when Jesus leaves, he has the Spirit, leaves the Spirit, sends the Spirit to dwell within us. And then we have the Word of the Spirit, which is the Scriptures themselves. And so I, I really do. I have everything I need. Like, you may think, like, there's... Jesus could do more for you. I'd love to know what that is. He gave you his very word. He gave you his very spirit. What, what do you, what, what's, tell me what's lacking again. There's a little bit of a, I get where you're coming from. I'm not trying to put an undue guilt on you, but um, if I can say this, and I'm speaking to myself too, really speaking to myself on this, like grow up and value and appreciate what he has given to you in, in the word. And value and appreciate what he has given to you in the spirit. Value and appreciate what he has given to you in the community of faith. I promise you, God's not in heaven going, oh, you know what I should have done? You know where I'm really dropping the ball? No, you think he dropped the ball. You think he could do more. Stop and think about that for a moment. I have to catch myself and go, where, where did I come up with that idea? And Jesus, standing there, instead of just going, ta-da, he went, I don't think he had an iPhone 7. He probably had like an iPhone 1 or 2 or something like that. But he, he literally goes, ta-da, <laughs> right? Ta-da. And by the way, I'm leaving, okay? And so when you go look at Jesus, you'll be able to do it this way. And so for actually a number of years, I've been driving to a, a family's home in Morrison, um, he grew up Mormon, and she grew up Church of Christ, which, by the way, there are more similarities in those two groups, but that's another story. Um, but they have a very similar hermeneutic. They really do. They have a very similar hermeneutic. And what we, I said, hey, I don't want to argue Mormonism. I mean, I used to be that way. Let's argue Mormonism and this and that and about Joseph Smith. I just said, why don't we just argue Jesus? And so we just, we just opened up John's gospel, John chapter 1, and I just tried to show him the Christ as described in John's gospel. Ta-da! And is that not it? So he shows, they, he, literally, he shows them absolutely everything concerning himself, and then they drew near to the village in which they were going. Verse 28. He acted as if he was going further. They urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is evening, and the day has now far spent. So he went, so he spent a whole day with them and never said who he was. He kind of kept it from them. But he didn't really keep it from them. He actually revealed himself to them probably in a better way. 
Think about that. A better way? Yeah. For them, a much better way. Um, so he went in and he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And yet once again, he did what I wasn't expecting. What does he do? <laughs> uh, just, that's just crazy. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? They rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. It's appeared to Simon, and they were told what happened on the road. And, and they just, this is how God works. And so I remember when Morgan um, and I had this long conversation. She was doing children's ministry at the time, and, and she was trying to find like a predictable pattern of God in the Old Testament. And I said, oh, I, I remember. I remember doing that. <laughs> I remember thinking you could do it, you know. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like in math. One, three, five, seven, keep going, right? Nine, eleven, da, 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 da. okay, I'll, I'll pick a more common. Remember when you had to do that, like find the series? And then there's like mathematical formulas to find the series? I, I thought that was so much fun, a little bit of OCD in my head, right? I thought that was so fascinating. And then I went to the scriptures and I tried to do the same thing. And by the way, I'm not arguing it's not logical. I'm just saying it's way deeper and richer, and it's under his divine prerogative, not the way Jim wants to see it. Let me give you another passage to look at. I'm not going to have time to go into it, but turn to Romans 4. Um, if you look at Romans 4, just take a look at it and get a sense of what's happening. Paul in Romans is trying to say, hey, um, for those of you that are Jewish, and kind of see a one way in which God always works, this kind of predictable pattern. Um, you're not wrong, but I think you don't understand how the pattern is based. Like this is what happens, by the way, in science quite a bit, is that they find the wrong consecutive pieces, and they think this is what's driving it, but there's actually something much deeper, more complicated driving it. And really great scientists go, you are confused thinking that this was the connecting point, but it was something deeper, okay? Basically, well, you know how God works? Through Jews. That's how he works, through Jews. Think about it. Let's just kind of think about it. Who's David? Tell me. Jewish. Elijah? Okay, and I could keep going, couldn't I? Moses? Levi? Do you see how God works? Yeah. Any questions? <laughs> What was that? Yeah. I don't want to hear about that. Any other questions? <laughs> no, but this is, what, this is what happens, does it not? So then what's the connection? Well, that's an outlier. Okay, but does that outlier actually signify that there is something deeper? Don't just ignore the outlier. Realize then, does that outlier have a connection? And, and by the way, Paul in Romans 4 says yes. Paul in Romans 4 says there's actually something that is happening that is deeper than Jewish-isms. And the piece that is deeper, according to Paul, and by the way, how I got here was in reference to where we're going to end up in Hebrews 11, which the Hebrew writer is driving us towards. Okay, in 7, he's driving us towards chapter 11. Okay? 
So as he's driving us in that direction, I love what Paul does. I mean, you need to spend some time in Hebrews 4, or in Romans 4, where Paul is saying over and over and over again, um, kind of in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, Romans 2, 12 through 16, he's saying, listen, like Gentiles have this thing in them that God uses. Jews have this thing that God has given them called the law. Um, God works in different ways according to his own prerogative and according to his own plan. This is how God worked in the Gentile world. This is how God worked in the Jewish world. And then he starts showing the deeper connection so that we can include Ron's Rahab. Right? Because we have to include Rahab. And so that's what he is getting. And it's that mentality where Paul is doing this and he is saying, hey, by the way, for those of you that are all excited about Abraham and you want to claim that you're related to him and therefore you get a pass, which everybody loves to feel like, I get a pass because I'm Frank's son. He's, he's realizing, which by the way, Jesus and John the Baptist even said, John the Baptist said this, remember this? Do not say that you are descendants of Abraham. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do not claim that. By the way, they spend all their time claiming it, but just John not warn them? Don't claim that. And what does he say? I love this text. What does he say? For God himself could raise up from these rocks descendants of Abraham. Because why? It's his prerogative. And so what is Romans 4? Look at the deeper. And what is the deeper? Abraham was not justified by his birth. He was not justified by his goodness. He was justified by what? His faith in something that goes much deeper and that he's justified by putting his faith and trust in the plan of God. He was attached to God's ultimate plan. God didn't work his plan around Abraham. God grafted Abraham into his plan by his grace. And what, is, what does he say? He does the same thing in Galatians. And by the way, if you want to see the undercurrent that holds all undercurrents together, it is God's divine prerogative and his amazing grace according to his ultimate plan to be glorified as the creator of all and the Redeemer of all. And we're like, ah, it's just that system's so crazy. And it's really, here's the part. The part that is predictable is God's going to do what God's going to do, but that's just so unpredictable. Because I love being able to tell you exactly how it's going to work out. And God goes, oh, I mean, you like being me. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I do. Yeah, how'd that work out for Adam and Eve? Not so good. How'd that work out for him? I mean, think about it. I mean, honestly, I'll ask you this question. How's that worked out for you? <laughs> Love the sarcasm, sweetheart. Um, it doesn't work out, is it, when we do that? So Rome, Romans chapter 4 is what? What holds all of this together is faith. By the way, this is where we're ending in Hebrews 7. What holds all this together is faith. And that faith is not just this is where I think we get it wrong, is we go, yeah, it's all about faith. Man, it is just all about faith. And faith is really all that matters. And we become fideistic, which is a philosophy term, fideism, which is faith in faith. And I don't have faith in faith. I don't have faith in faith. I don't have faith in a better tomorrow. I don't. My faith is actually attached to something. I don't have just faith. You know what I have? Faith in God. Like I have faith in God when I get him, 
and the logic makes sense to me, right? Much of what I describe here, doesn't a lot of what God does kind of make sense to you? And I, I mean it. I'm not trying to trick you. A lot of what God does makes sense. I, I see it, and I'm like, man, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when I look at the whole picture of you, I get why you went after that sheep. When I get the whole, I get, I get why Jesus went to the woman. At the, I'm not shocked by that. Actually, I'm going. Actually, that kind of makes sense to me. Why Jesus pursued this woman, and loved her and cared for her, kind of lines up with it. It totally makes sense to me in terms of how that works. So there is a logic that God demonstrates that I get, and then God says, "Great, I'm glad you get it. By the way, that's a gift for me. You're welcome." And then He says, um, "What happens when it, it doesn't work out this way?" What happens when I take you to the, to the farthest extent of your logic or your compassion or your forgiveness? What happens when I take you to the very, very edge of obedience? Then what do you do? What do you do at the edge of obedience? Yeah, and I, I mean, honestly, if we were honest, sometimes we do well and sometimes we bail, don't we? I'm not going there. I'm not going there. I'm not going there relationally. I'm not going there emotionally. I'm not going there. My, my pride is too great. I'm not going there. And God in his kindness is still patient with us. And what he's doing in Luke 24, Romans 4, he's showing us something much deeper. And what he's doing in Hebrews 7, he's saying, I want you to look at this amazing thing that happened with Melchizedek. And I want you to see kind of this deeper connection about God's prerogative and his plan. There's no genealogy because God doesn't need genealogy. God gets, I, I know you Jews want me to tie him back to Abraham somehow, but no, God doesn't have to do that to you. He gets to do what he wants. And when I draw from this is that when God takes me right to the fullest extent of me relationally, spiritually, and, and I am just at the brink of wanting to quit, it is moments like that that all of a sudden I realized, did I have faith in faith? Did I have faith in tomorrow? What did I have faith in? And then I have to answer the very real question, man, and to the glory of him. May that always be the answer. Amen? Um, I'll leave with the benediction. We had a lot of those in Colombia. Um, uh, May you look long both at the text and your life in a way so that when you don't see him, you still see him. And, and may, he give, may he give you the grace to persist, to look longer, to gaze in both wonder and amazement, and that beyond our logic and beyond our understanding, may we experience peace and love, and his presence. Amen?